and thanks for joining us today for the Bright Canner podcast. My name is Elliot Buckner. I'm a partner here at Bright Canner, and I'm joined today with my fellow partner, Scott Bucci. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Elliot. I wanted to have you come in today and talk a little bit about handling premises liability cases. Uh, You know, premises liability is something that we attorneys throw around and we know what it is. I'm not sure regular folks really understand when we say a premises liability case. What are we talking about? really not that complicated. It's whenever anybody is injured on somebody else's property. It could be private property. It could be public property. It could be indoors. It could be outdoors. It's anytime anybody suffers an injury on somebody else's property. And I think people think, you know, an injury on property, I think the classic example they think of is at the grocery store. They're walking down an aisle and somebody left a grape on the floor. I mean, is that an example of a premises liability case? Yeah, that's that's one example. That's one everybody thinks about. But premises liability is a lot broader than just that. You've got also falling merchandise cases. Uh, we represent a lot of folks that go into big box stores and things are stacked improperly and they fall on somebody. Uh, it also includes store security cases, uh, such as a false imprisonment claim. So we've represented people who uh, were suspected of shoplifting incorrectly and the store has detained them uh, and held them sometimes half hour, an hour without probable cause. Uh, so that's a that's a claim for false imprisonment. That's an example of a premises liability case. Um, You've also got uh, security cases uh, that arises a lot of times in hotels and motels where the uh, the hotel doesn't properly secure the doors. Uh, somebody's allowed to get in that it shouldn't be there and ends up assaulting somebody else. So it's not just simply slipping on a, a grape or something like that. There's a lot of different kinds of premises liability cases. I'm kind of curious about that security case that you were talking about. I mean, that I, I wouldn't think of as your typical premises case. It's not the grape on the floor. It's not the wet floor after somebody mops it. Um, tell me a little bit more about what a security premises case is. Okay. So like a motel or a hotel, they owe a duty to protect their uh, the people who are, are staying there. Um, and it's called innkeeper liability. And that's because when you go to a hotel – you know, you're not in control of, of your surrounding. You really are relying on somebody else to protect you uh, because you don't own the keys to the, to the hotel or the motel. And so many of them have key cards and, and limited access. And if they don't properly protect you and properly secure the premises and allow, you know, somebody to come in and, and commit an assault, then they're responsible for that. And so uh, we've, we've handled quite a few. In fact, we've, we've handled one recently where um, the key card entry was defective. It was broken. Um, a guy was able to get in, and as uh, our client was leaving, grabbed her, threw her back into the room, and sexually assaulted her. Um, so that's, that's an example of a, of a premises security case. Is there anything unique about handling premises cases here in Virginia. I know that you practice in a number of different states and you get pulled in by other attorneys, even outside of Virginia. But within Virginia, is there anything unique about our state? Well, the biggest thing that's unique about our state is what we call contributory negligence. Um, Pretty much every other state except us and a couple others follows what's called comparative negligence. Now, comparative negligence is kind of common sense. Um, What happens is that a jury in evaluating the case uh, compares the fault of the, the customer and the store. And so let me give you an example. Um, somebody, a customer is walking through the store and they slip and fall on some water. And the jury has to say, okay, well, who's, what 
part of the fault lies with the store and what part lies with the customer. And they may say, well, the store was 95% at fault because they have a duty to keep the store safe. But you know what? That customer could have been looking where they were walking a little bit better. They're partially at fault too. They shouldn't have been looking up at merchandise. So we think that they're 5% at fault. And in comparative negligence states, what happens is you reduce the compensation by the percentage fault. So if the jury were to award, say, $100,000, at the end of the day, the customer would be compensated only $95,000. It would be reduced 5% for their proportionate fault. Virginia, it's called contributory negligence. And what that means is that if the customer is found to be at fault at all, 5%, 1%, it doesn't matter, they get nothing. They are barred from recovering. So it's a very harsh rule, uh, very difficult to overcome in Virginia, but it's, it's unfortunately a challenge that we have to face. And Virginia likes to be an outlier with contributory negligence. Are we an outlier? We are definitely an outlier. I think that it's only us, Maryland, North Carolina, I think Alabama are the only states that, that follow this rule. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue in every premises case. You know, it's an issue in general tort cases as well, you know, in, in auto accident cases or, or any other type of case. But um, in premises cases, it's always an issue. Why is it always an issue in premises cases? If it applies in all cases, is it unique to premises? Is it harder in premises? It's not unique to premises, but it's definitely harder because you can always take a little bit more care. I mean, that's the argument the defense always raises. Say, oh, well, you know, they should have been looking harder. You know, we don't walk around looking at the ground when we're walking through a store, but they try to frame it to say, okay, well, look, you know, if, if you're just a little bit, you know, just taking a little bit more care, this accident would have been prevented. And sometimes juries fall for that. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a harsh rule, something we have to deal with. Well, what do you have to prove in a premises case? I mean, you, we've talked a little bit about the contributory negligence, and it almost sounds like you have to prove that your client, the person who was injured, wasn't negligent. But how do you prove that the store owner, the property occupier, that they were negligent, that they're the ones responsible? Um, I think it's easier to walk through an example. Uh, So you have to prove what's called actual or constructive notice. And so what that essentially means is that the store actually knew of the dangerous condition or that they should have known. And so let's say you have a case where somebody's walking through a store and there's a leaky cooler and they slip slip and fall on the water. You have to prove that the store actually knew that that cooler was leaking or you have to prove that they should have known. Now that may sound simple. It's like, oh, well, it's their cooler. They, they should know that it's leaking. But that's not what the Virginia Supreme Court has said should have known or constructive notice means. What our Supreme Court has said is that in order to prove that a store should have known of a dangerous condition, you have to prove how long that condition was present. Because it's just as likely that that condition arose moments before the accident happened, as it is that it had been there long enough that the store should have found out about it. And so it's it's really a difficult burden to meet sometimes to show that how long something had been there. And, and there are different strategies that we use to try to get to that. Um, but it's it's something that we have to deal with in every case as well as contrib. Well, how do you, I mean, how do you do that? How do you establish, we'll use your leaky cooler example. Right. How do you establish that that cooler either had been leaking for a while or that the store should have known about it? I mean, how, how do you do that when somebody comes in and says, I slipped and fell on this liquid in the store? What do you do? Well, I think that that's, you hit the nail on the head of one thing. It's very important that 
if somebody's injured, they come to us as soon as we can. They can because um, we send out preservation letters to get surveillance video. And so what that means is that as soon as somebody hires us, we immediately uh, ship a letter to the store that says we're asking that you preserve all video um, because the video, the surveillance video will show how long the water had been on the floor. Now, these surveillance videos, uh, typically, they are taped over every two to four weeks uh, in most big box stores. It's been my experience. And so if somebody comes to us you know, six months or a year after the accident, that evidence is likely lost. And, and that's a reason- That cooler gets fixed? That cooler gets fixed. The condition is gone, you know, and the, the surveillance video that shows that it had been on the, the ground for an hour before the accident, it's gone too. And so, you know, if, if somebody has a, an accident like that, it's really important that they contact the firm right away so that that pre- preservation letter can be sent out. What about um, just using your leaky cooler example? What if it is the first time that the cooler leaked? It leaked and spread water condensation on the floor and somebody comes in and slips and falls. Is the store off the hook just because it was the first time it happened? Or are there other duties that the store has to identify that problem before somebody slips and falls on it? Well, that's, you know, then we get into maintenance records and um, seeing how they maintained it. Did they ship it out to, did they delegate it to a third party? And so then, you know, we we go through a process after a lawsuit is filed called discovery, where we're allowed to get documentation of what procedures they use to, uh, to fix, to maintain. Um, had there been any problems in the past? Uh, was there a third party vendor, you know, an outside company that maintained it? What what type of schedule that they maintain to check this thing. And sometimes you find out that, you know, yeah, we never check it until there's a problem. Well, that's not proper maintenance. And so we, that's an avenue that we, we sometimes use to try to prove uh, liability. You know, if, if that stuff's not available, the videos are gone or the maintenance schedules are gone or something like that. And that can happen over the passage of time with the store. And I, I mean, what do you do to make sure that that stays intact until you can get into the case and do your discovery. Is that that preservation letter that's, you're talking? Yeah, that's the preservation letter. Because um, So that is a letter. So you're, we call it putting the store on notice that there is evidence that may be relevant to a claim. That's the legal jargon. But basically what you're saying is, look, you guys have stuff in your exclusive possession right now that is relevant to the case. We're, asked, we're demanding that you preserve it. And if the store does not do that, then we can file a, a motion that's called a, a spo- and ask for what's called a spoliation inference, which essentially what we do is we go to the court and we say, look, uh, this person hired me. They had a slip and fall or, or whatever it was. We asked them to preserve the maintenance records. We asked them to preserve the, um, the surveillance video. The store was on notice. The Thankfully, the customer hired us a couple weeks after uh, the accident. We know that that it still should have existed. They didn't do it. They didn't preserve it. All right. Now that evidence is lost forever. So, Judge, we're going to ask that you instruct the jury that you they may consider that had that evidence been presented, it would have been adverse or bad for the store. So that's a that's something uh, a tactic that we use to to win these difficult cases. <laughs> You know, going through that list of the stuff that you're looking for in these cases, um, you seem to know exactly what you're asking for. And I think that's a little inside baseball from your past history. Before you uh, started fighting for the good guys and representing the injured people, you spent some time representing the building owners, the property owners, the stores, right? Yeah. So I've been doing this for 23 years now. And the first dozen or so, I was a defense lawyer. Um, so I, I was actually defending against the people that I now represent. So I've... I, 
used to represent to Walmart and Costco, Big Lots, Lowe's, stores like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've been able to see behind the curtain a little bit and see how they defend cases and, and what, you know, I know what to look for and, you know, how they maintain it usually. Do you think that gives you an advantage because you understand some of their policies and protocols, like how quickly they overwrite their videos and how quickly they purge documents and things like that? Yeah, I, I think it does. You know, I, I can send, you know, a lot of times judges call it fishing expeditions when, a, you know, in, in discovery. When we get into a lawsuit, we're allowed to send what we call interrogatories and requests for production and, and look for, we're looking for certain documents or certain things. And some lawyers will send very broad things. Um, I like to keep things narrowly tailored. I know exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and yeah, I, I do think it gives me an advantage. So you, you're taking care of your cases by shooting with a rifle, not a shotgun. Yeah, essentially. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't make much sense to ask for broad stuff that's irrelevant, that's just going to delay the case longer, have more motions and things like that, versus if you, if you go right with laser focus of what you need, you're more likely to have a judge say, okay, you have to turn that over versus asking for everything under the sun. You had talked a little bit about the security cases, the premises security case. And I think one of the examples you gave was the hotel and, mm -hmm. and the faulty access door. Um, that's a little bit different than the leaky cooler or, or the mop, uh, water that was left on the floor or something like that. What are you looking for in a security case, a negligent security case to prove that case? Well, it's, it's, you know, there's, I think there's really two kinds of security cases that, that, uh, I look at. One is, is what I talked about before where you have the, the hotel that's not properly locking down the premises or providing access only to, to people who are staying at the hotel. Um, other types of security cases deal with actual hotel employees. And our firm, uh, I'll give you an example, our firm represented um, uh, a lady who was sexually assaulted by a actual employee of the hotel. And in those cases, what we're looking for is whether or not the hotel did a proper back background check on the employee. And in, in that case in particular, it was actually the guy who was supposed to be providing security. It turns out um, that this hotel employee had a history of prior felonies, prior sexual assaults, and the hotel did virtually nothing to investigate his background. And so we were able to prove that uh, they had what we call negligent hiring. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a different type of security case. But that's in, in those cases, we're looking into, you know, what did they do to investigate this employee's background? So in that type of a case, you're not necessarily proving that the hotel, or I guess it would apply to apartments and to condos and any place that their people are living or staying where they're hiring security. But you're not necessarily proving that they knew that that person would do that act on that particular day. You're really showing that they should have known based on his background. He just had no business being a security guard. That's right. That's right. And so you have to get into what their protocols are, what they did to investigate. Um, you know, a lot of times they'll, you know, they'll just say, you know, have you, they won't even do a criminal background check. And, um, you know, if you don't even do that, then, then really how, how much effort are you putting forth to take care of the people who are staying at your hotel? Um, but yeah, that, that would be considered a premises case as well, but it's called the tort of negligent hiring. Um, but again, it occurred on a premises, so that's an example of premises liability. We've been talking a lot about incidents that occur inside a building. I mean, you had referenced the falling merchandise, there's the stuff on the floor, there's the incidents that can occur with a hotel or an apartment or something like that. 
Can, can there also be premises liability cases that occur outdoors in a common area or in a park or something like that? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So premises is on, again, premises liability is just simply injury on somebody else's property. And that property can be indoors, it can be outdoors, uh, it can be in a parking lot. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, there are slip and fall on snow and ice cases. I'll give you an example, in a parking lot. And so a, a store in a, on a snow and ice case uh, a store has a duty to remove snow and ice within a reasonable amount of time after the snow and ice has fallen. And a lot of times stores will hire these uh, these vendors to go do it who just run through really quickly, don't do a good job. Um, customer gets out, first step out of the, the car they take, boom, they fall down. That happened outside the store in the middle of the parking lot. That's still considered a premises liability case. But how, how does the store control the snow and the ice? I mean, they don't dictate the weather like that. They don't, but they do. If they're going to hold themselves out to the public and invite people to come on in, spend their money, shop, they have a duty to use reasonable care. Now, that duty doesn't start, and this is a little quirk in Virginia law, is that they don't have to start removing the snow and ice until after it's stopped falling. And so, no, they don't control when the, when the snow comes uh, when it comes and when it stops. But when it does stop, that's when their duty begins to remove the snow and ice uh, and use reasonable methods to do that. Does it matter where the snow and ice is accumulated? I mean, does it have to be in a specific part of the parking lot or near the front door or the only door in and out of the building? I mean, does any of that matter in a snow and ice case or a parking lot case like that? Yeah, it does. And, and it, so if this is, the legal term is means of ingress and egress. And so if there's only one means of ingress and egress, then the duty is heightened. You have to use greater care closer to the front of the store to make sure that that area where people are most likely to walk through is clear um, near the front of the store. And I've, I've found that, you know, I've tried a few of these that it's really a jury question as to whether or not it's reasonable once you get into the parking lot. Now, if you're talking the way far back of the parking lot, you know, sometimes juries will say, look, you can't do everything. But if you're going to remove snow and ice, you got to do it where the folks most likely are going to be walking from into the store. So way back in the back of the parking lot, maybe not. Up at the front of the parking lot, absolutely. Uh, I've always thought this was a really interesting case that you handled years ago. Now that we're talking about stores and parking lots and snow and ice and things like that, it was that case, and we're not going to mention any names, but it was the case where you had a person who slipped and fell on a patch of black ice in a parking lot, and it was way away from the building, and it, but it was on a slope. And I, I'm hoping you're remembering the case I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It was on a slope, and what was happening, it was several days after the storm, and it was the, uh, the snow would melt, and it would run down the parking lot, and then freeze at night. And I mean, the things you went through to prove that case between bringing in experts and meteorologists and all this stuff, just can you share a little bit about what went into proving that case? Because I remember when you first started telling me about it, I thought there's no way you're going to be able to prove this case, but you put it all together. Yeah, I mean, so so we had to get uh, NOA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, we had to get those records from the government to show exactly when, uh, what were the temperatures. And you could see that the, the temperatures would... Uh, during the day, they would get up so it was hot enough that the snow would melt, and then it would uh, refreeze. It would go below freezing at night. And we had to get a meteorological expert to explain that, look, when you, when, um, you know, snow will, will melt and refreeze. Uh, and what the store had done is they had simply plowed the snow into these gigantic piles right next to where all of the parking spaces were. And so, predictably, the snow melted, refroze, melted, refroze. And 
you know, I'm not saying that you have to remove all of the snow, but what you have to do is realize that that's going to happen. And we had a, a snow removal expert come in and say, well, you have to salt every day in order to prevent that from happening. And we were able to, at mediation, get the case resolved um, under that theory. Didn't y'all also bring in an engineer to look at the slope of the parking yeah. lot? And Yes. Yeah. And so we had to say, this all goes into, is this a foreseeable danger? Um, is this something that should have been foreseen? So we, we had an engineer come in and say, here, here's the, the slope of the, the, the parking lot. The snow is located here. It likely, you know, we had to prove that the black ice came from the melted snow. Um, and, and so, yeah, that was, we had to use an engineer as well. You have sort of developed a niche in premises liability cases over the years from your, your work on behalf of the property owners when you were back in your black hat defense days <laughs> to now you're representing the good guys, the injured people and their families. Uh, there's not really a lot of folks in Virginia who specialize in that area of the law. Why do you think that is? Because it's hard. <laughs> These are hard cases. You know, I, I'd say next to medical malpractice cases, they're, they're probably the, one of some of the hardest cases to prove. Um, and they, it takes a lot of time and effort to work them up the right way. Uh, you know, another big issue is that in most premises cases, you don't know in the beginning whether or not you're going to be able to prove liability. So I mentioned before how, you know, we have to send preservation letters into to preserve the surveillance records or the maintenance records. Well, we don't, the other side doesn't have to turn those over. And they honestly, they never do before litigation occurs. And so when somebody comes in and says, hey, I've been injured, you don't know at that point if they got a case or not. And so a lot of lawyers look at that and say, well, maybe it'll end up being case, maybe it won't. I'm not going to waste my time with it. But that's something that, you know, with some with some work and 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 you do have to file suit. And that's the other thing too, is that a lot of lawyers uh, don't like to file suit. They like to bring a case in, settle it and be done with it. And in premises cases, most of the time we have to file suit because that's the only way we can prove our case. Because without those documents without those records, without the information that's in the exclusive possession of the, the store, the premises owner, we, we just can't win. So it takes a lot of work. They're difficult cases and not a lot of folks like to do them. <laughs> All right. So I think I know your answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, you've talked about the difficulty of the law, the difficulty of developing the facts, the, the challenges that it represents to the attorney handling these cases. So it sounds to me if somebody has a potential premises liability case, they've got to do two things. They've got to find an experienced lawyer who knows what to look for and what rocks to overturn, and they need to do it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the speed is, is very important. You know, this isn't like a, a car crash case, you know, a car crash case, you know, you're going to have a, a, a police officer come and make a report. You're going to have witnesses. Usually you'll have photographs from the shop. The evidence will be preserved in an auto accident case so that if they hire a lawyer a year down the road, you know, it's always better to, to get the evidence early, but that evidence will still exist. Most of it will still exist. Not so in a premises case. A lot of the evidence that you need to prove a case is only going to exist for maybe a month after the accident. And if somebody's hurt and they don't hire an attorney within that month time frame, that evidence could be lost forever. Um, and again, that is evidence that is exclusively in the control of the defense unless you put them, of the premises owner, unless you put them on notice, it's going to be gone forever. All right, Scott, what, what do you think is the number one misconception that the public has about a premises liability case? The biggest one is that most folks think, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in this store. They're supposed to keep it clean, supposed to keep it safe. I've, you know, I fell down. I got hurt. 
they they have to pay me. They're responsible for this. You know, it's because it's their premises. They're responsible for it, and that just isn't the law in Virginia. Um, unfortunately, the law in Virginia is is really tilted toward the premises owner, toward the stores. Uh, it makes it very difficult for the customer to win because you have to prove that the store either actually knew of a condition that caused the the injury, which rarely occurs, or you have to prove how long it was present. It's not just that unfortunately you happen to get hurt at a store. Um, it's just a, a much higher legal standard. All right, Scott, thanks so much for your time today. If anybody's watching or listening has any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to us here at Bright Canner. Uh, if you've got premises liability questions, Scott will be here to help you answer those as well. Uh, consultations here are always free. Scott, thanks. Thank you, Elliot.